Uh, just want to tell you I wasn't here last week because uh, I was on vacation. We were in the uh, Boston area visiting my daughter Ruth and family and uh, three inches of snow and 18 degree weather. So uh, it's interesting to be back here in 70 degree weather. Uh, I will not be here tonight. I am officiating a wedding. This was planned well over a year ago in a time when this would have normally been a fellowship Sunday. But uh, so uh, I will not be here tonight, but Lord willing, we'll be here next Sunday night and continue on with Philippians. And when I finish that, we'll be moving to Ecclesiastes. Well, this morning, we need to appreciate the practical ways in which God oversees the events and circumstances of the entire world and also our individual lives. During the celebratory service we had a couple of weeks ago, we focused our attention on Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. This morning, we see that God does all that he pleases in regards to the kingship over Israel. The theme this morning is that God begins to act to remove Saul from kingship and to establish David as king over Israel. God's actions have implications for both David and Saul as individuals and for the nation of Israel as a whole. This is an extremely important portion of 1 Samuel, for it is foundational to all the chapters that come. Uh, this, as I say, is the initiation of the transfer of power from uh, Saul to David and God's activity. And so it explains all that's going to be unfolding in the ensuing chapters. Earlier passages had revealed that God's will and decision was to replace Saul as king. God had clearly stated that God was going to remove Saul from his kingship in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and is in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and adultery. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. That was Samuel's words to Saul. Further, God was going to replace Saul with a man after God's own choosing. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from your hand this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Later, it is revealed that that person that is to replace uh, Saul is in fact David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, it says, And he sent, uh, that is Samuel sent for the last son of Jesse, brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and handsome. And the Lord said, And rise, anoint him, for this is he. Then verse 13, where we had left off in our study of 1 Samuel chapter 16, then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of the brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here is the anointing of David. The spirit of God comes upon him. He is to be the next king over Israel. However, Saul is not going to go quietly into the night. He's not willing to accept the will of God. Uh, in fact, he rejects it. He is not willing to give up his kingship. So, how is all of that going to play out? 
How is this transfer of power to come to pass? Samuel is not in a position to see to it that Saul does all that God commands. In fact, with a king having absolute authority in Israel, there was no human entity that could remove Saul from office if he was not willing to relinquish it. So what is going to prevent Saul from just continuing on as king, regardless of what God has declared his will to be? So the question is, will David have to take matters into his own hands? Uh, Is he going to have to kill uh, Saul in order to become king? In the chapters ahead, we find out that there are many in Israel who are saying that very thing. Uh, There are many who are saying to David, it is God's will for you to be anointed, therefore, you need to get rid of Saul. You need to take your life. And we're going to see that there are a number of situations in which it appears that God kind of just hands Saul over to David. David could have easily killed Saul, but repeatedly refuses to do so, for he's not willing to usurp God's authority. He's willing to wait for God's will to be accomplished. So how is this going to come to pass? As we look at this chapter, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. First, knowing what the will of God is, Is God able to act? Is he able to bring his will to pass? Will God, in fact, act? Will he be active to see to it that his will, indeed, is accomplished? And then, how will God act? How how is he going to bring this to pass? The answer to each of those questions is an unequivocal yes. God is able to act. God will act. And this morning we're going to see the manner in which God does act. We're going to find out that God enters into a very lengthy process that takes place over a period of time. Saul's removal is announced one day, but is not taking place the next day. In fact, there's an extended period of time and process before all this actually comes to pass. Rather, the process ending in Saul's removal plays out over a lengthy period of time through a series of events that cover a number of chapters that we will be looking at verse by verse as we go forward. Today, we focus on the means by which God is going to act, which will ultimately result in bringing about the downfall of Saul and the establishment of David as king. We left off last time that we were in 1 Samuel, with 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Quick review. The Spirit of God comes upon David to equip David as king. First, God had revealed to David the future of Israel was that David would be its king, verse 12. And he was brought him in, and he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and handsome, and the Lord said, anoint him, for this is he. This anointing with oil was symbolic of the work that the Holy Spirit would do in establishing David as a king. Verse 13, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That was in like manner when Saul had been anointed as king. The Spirit of God had rushed upon him at that time, 1 Samuel 10, verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and he turned them into another man. So here is this working of the Spirit of God in the life of David 
when David is to become king, just as the Spirit of God had worked in the life of Saul when Saul was to become king. Just like in the life of Saul, that that did not happen immediately, so too in the life of David, that does not happen immediately. What we're to see is at the same time the Spirit of God is at work to remove Saul from kingship as he is when he establishes the Spirit of God rushing upon David. Right? Those two things are equated with each other. They, they take place at the same time. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So you have the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon David to make him king, and you have the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul. Now that's kind of a, a startling statement. It is meant to be so. It's a sobering statement. It's a, an incredible thought here that uh, God removes his spirit from, from Saul. That spirit that came upon him when he was anointed to be king. Now there has been so much written on this aspect of what does that mean that the spirit of God was removed from, from Saul. Well, it's talking about the kingship. It means that God's spirit was no longer enabling Saul and providing uh, Saul with what was necessary to fulfill his kingly duties. Uh, just to help you understand, in Psalm 51, in the time of David's sinfulness, David is king in Psalm 51, but uh, David had engaged in great sinfulness. And when he had, he prayed a prayer in Psalm 51, verse 11, in which he says, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. When he prayed that, he was in essence praying, don't remove me from the kingship. Don't take the kingship away from me. He was not saying, don't take my salvation away. We're not talking about salvation here. Uh, We're not talking about the fact that Saul loses his salvation or that David is and fearful of losing his salvation. This is not about his salvation. It's about God's equipping him as king. And so David even prays in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It doesn't say restore my salvation, but restore the joy of it, for David had been out of fellowship with God. And God graciously answers the prayer of David, and David is not removed as king over Israel, but is allowed to continue. But as we move on through the text, we learn that God not only is seeking to help Saul, but now God is actually actively working against Saul. Working against Saul. There there is an action that God is taking. Notice verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and, now here's the active part, that was the retraction of the spirit. Now here's the activity and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. As we look at 14, the emphasis is that this is in fact a work of God. If you look at verse 14, the most important words in that statement of verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord. 
That should just jump out at you. Okay, This is God's activity from the Lord. I would point out to you this morning that it is absolutely essential to understand that this is not a work of Satan. We're not talking about spiritual warfare here. We're not talking about the evil one and God and they're fighting back and forth and will God's will be achieved or won't God's will be achieved? No, this is not the activity of the evil one. This is God's activity. This is what God is doing. This is from the Lord. We find out in verse 14 that God sends a harmful spirit to Saul. Uh, If you look at verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, we need to take in mind here and uh, address the issue that other translations, such as the NAV, the King James, the NAS, uh, translate this that an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And and I think that can give us the the wrong impression, uh, for that almost sounds like demonic activity, except this is coming from the Lord, all right? And so when it's talking about evil, in Hebrew, the word that is used here for evil does not always mean evil in a moral sense. Uh, It isn't evil, when we think of evil, we think of wickedness, all right? But the evil that is used here in the Hebrew is, is a word that speaks of that which is harmful, unhelpful, unpleasant, causing pain, unhappiness, misery, calamity, trouble. All right? So he is sending a spirit that's going to wreak havoc with Saul. Not to Saul's benefit as king, but to Saul's detriment as king. And then it tells us specifically in the text the way in which this spirit brings harm. That's found in the end of verse 14, where it says the Lord tormented him. Tormented him. I I like the way that the NAS translates it. When I say I like it, it's not just because it makes me feel good. I think it's the most close to the Hebrew. And that is that the Lord terrorized him. The Lord terrorized him. The effect of this harmful spirit coming upon Saul, putting it into modern vernacular, was that he started undergoing panic attacks. Okay? He just got crazy. Uh, He went berserk in the sense that he became incredibly panicked. Okay. Uh, he, he was just terrified of, of everyone and everything that was going around him, although it wasn't constant. It would come and go. But it was this sense of unsettledness. And in particular, he was terrified of losing the kingship. Saul wanted to be king no matter what. And it just terrified him to think that he was no longer going to be king. And it drove him crazy to think that he wasn't going to be king. The effect of this spirit was that Saul was be, being uh, smitten, as I say, with these, these, uh, these panic attacks. 
he would say and do irrational things as revealed in subsequent chapters because he's unwilling to accept the will of God. He is going to come to the conclusion that he's been wronged. And he would not accept the will of God and he's going to fight against it. Next, the servants recognized that the condition that Saul was experiencing was from God. Uh, Saul's advisors tell Saul what is going on, verse 15. And Saul's servants said to him, now when it says that Saul's servants said to him, we're not talking about his butler. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about uh, you know, the baker or the candlestick maker. Uh, we're not talking about those people that brought Saul his robes and slippers. When it's talking about Saul's servant, it's talking about his administrators. It's talking about those that are overseeing the kingdom. It's talking about his advisors, all right? The cabinet, if you will, or the chief of staff, or the people that are directly under Saul and giving him oversight and direction as he rules in the kingdom of Israel. So they give him some advice. And they make an assessment of what's going on. And it is incredibly amazing how uh, astute they are. For notice verse 15. Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Man, they hit it on the head. <laughs> they got it 100% right, which is pretty amazing uh, that they would have that kind of insight and understanding that they attributed to what was going on exactly correctly. This is God doing this, and this is what God is bringing to pass. The origin of Saul's difficulty was not a physical malady, nor was it simply an emotional condition that he was undergoing as a result of all the stress and anxiety in his life. This is more than just a human reaction to the events and circumstances that he's undergoing. The origin of the problem is a spiritual problem. And in recognizing that it was a spiritual problem that Saul was facing, it's again amazing that they didn't jump to the conclusion that this is the work of Baal, some false god some demon. But they said, no, this is the hand of God, which says something about where Israel is at the present time, at least in their understanding of who God is. All right? They, they at least theoretically acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And so they declare it very clearly. Though they were not willing to submit to God, Nevertheless, they understood that this was from God. So Saul's servants give him some advice. Right? Remember, these are the prime minister, these are the, these are the chief of staff, these are the big wigs in Israel. And uh, they give him some advice. The advice is to undergo spiritual, uh, musical therapy, verse 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the, the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. What? What? As you read that, he just, what? what? What does that got to do with anything? This is the work of God, the harmful spirit of God is coming upon you to torment you. So what you need to do is go out and find a musician who's going to play some nice, soothing music for you to calm you down so that you're going to feel better. They don't advise him to repent. 
They don't say, seek the Lord's forgiveness. They don't say, bow before this mighty God. They say, try to deal with the symptoms. You know, just, just try to get through life, okay? Just try to settle down and, and you know, maybe a little calm, soothing music is going to help. And it might help you a great deal. But they don't say, repent. Saul follows their advice, verse 17. Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Okay? That's what I need. I need music. Find me somebody who's skilled and bring, me, bring him to me. Just an aside here, and it really is an aside because it's not the main point of the passage, but many times in life people experience spiritual problems in which they are trying to find ways to simply uh, get through those spiritual problems. Okay? Because of sin, many times people are stressed. People have feelings of guilt. They feel like they're abandoned or, or lonely. No one cares. And they become anxious about super events that are taking place. And it is very common in our society to try to deal with spiritual problems through other means. The musical therapy idea is not all that crazy. There are a lot of people that would tell you, you know, listen to music as you go to bed at night, and maybe it'll help you fall asleep. Take some sleeping pills. Use medication, legal, illegal. All right, find some way to just take your mind off of it. Go on a vacation, take a trip. Just try to get this behind you and don't let it bother you. Not repent, not accept what is going on, but medicate your way out of it. Well, Saul follows the advice. Therefore, Saul uh, tells his advisors to seek a person that is going to have musical expertise. Verse 17, Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. The uh, musical expertise is all that Saul is care, cares about at this time. Well, one of the five of advisors finds a man that meets the qualifications. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who is skilled in playing. This guy's really good. He's great on the heart. Liar. But he says a lot more about David than just that. That's all that Saul cares about. Find me somebody that's a good musician. But they find out that he goes on to say he's a man of valor, of war, prudent speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sends for this man who just happens to be David, verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to David and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Here we see that the individual who is anointed to be the future king is continuing on with his normal day activities. He's out and he is feeding sheep. It's going to be important in chapters to come that you keep in mind that that's what David is doing. All right, David is not plotting uh, to become king at this point. He's not hanging around the palace. He's out taking care of the sheep, okay? Send me David. Jesse replies in a very gracious manner. Verse 20. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and 
young goat and sent by David his son to Saul. Now there is another statement of great irony and is incredibly important in the chapters to come. So don't miss it, all right? Here is the relationship that Saul and David have to each other initially. Initially, Saul loves David immensely, verse 21. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. Saul couldn't have been happier with David. David was a tremendous guy. Saul loved David. Secondly, Saul viewed David as his protector. Saul viewed David as his guardian. Saul trusted David. Notice at the end of verse 21, it says, and he became his armor bearer. He became his armor bearer. He would have been a guard for Saul. Okay, think of secret service in our day and age. Someone who is going to be guarding the president. He elevates David to the place of being a protector of himself. And then thirdly, Saul promotes David at the end of uh, verse 22. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. Now we're given the reason for all of that, which comes in verse 23. And that is, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So when Saul would get these panic attacks over being removed as the king of Israel, David would play. And David would play on his harp, and Saul felt secure. Saul felt safe. Saul believed all was well, and he was just going to continue on as he always had. His fears left him. This, of course, is all part of the work of God. This is all a part of Saul's undoing. This is the background to the beginning of the transfer of the kingship from Saul to David. And as I said, this passage is extremely important to understand the ensuing events in the next chapters of Saul running after David and trying to kill him and all that good stuff. You gotta start here. First, it helps us to understand Saul's outrage and feeling of betrayal by David when it becomes known to Saul that David had been anointed as king of Israel. Can you imagine Saul's surprise when he finds out that the very one who is going to replace him as king is the one who's been playing this harp, this one who has been promoted to a place of guardianship and protector of Saul, 
And this one who has been bringing him comfort and solace, that guy, he's the one. Can you see how Saul would have felt betrayed? Can you see how Saul would have been angered by that? Can you see how Saul would say, I love this guy. And look how he turns around and pays me back. You get it? This is all going on. This also helps us understand why Saul believes that he has been deceived and conspired against. Many of those close to Saul, even his own son Jonathan, is eventually going to side with David. And so Saul feels betrayed. Because those that he had put his faith and confidence in, even his own son, is going to be on David's side. And many of Saul's followers are going to stay true to David. Excuse me, true to Saul. They're going to be a part of his army and they're going to be running all over the countryside trying to find David and kill him along with those that are with David. So all of this is unpacking and unfolding. It's important for us to realize as we look at this passage that David has done nothing wrong. Uh, David did not conspire uh, to this position. David wasn't out to deceive Saul. He was summoned. He entered into the service. He was faithful to Saul. And he indeed was a protector to Saul. And all the time that Saul is out to kill David in the chapters to come, and David has opportunity time and time again to kill Saul, he refuses to do so. Saul, I mean, David does nothing wrong. David will not take matters into his own hands in order to become king over Israel. But can you see how this must have looked to Saul and his followers? The army. You know, there are people that are looking at Saul saying, this guy was a great king. He helped us. He, he, he defeated Philistines. He did this. He did that. This guy is a great king. Just imagine how the Israeli Gazette would have reported the things that went on. They would have said there needs to be an investigation. Who was this person that advised the king to go after David? What was his ulterior motive? What was he about? Did he know at the time that he recommended David that David was anointed as king? Was this a plot right from the very beginning to overthrow Saul and to achieve the purposes? What was his relationship to David? Was he a relative? Close friend? Why did he choose David of all people? Isn't that kind of coincidental? Just so happens, let me bring David into the court. Can you see how that's going to play out? Do you see how people are going to take that? Can you see what the internet is going to do with that kind of information? It's trouble. It's trouble. It's trouble in the nation of Israel. 
I hope you get the picture. These Bible events are real, practical, and filled with instruction. These are real life events that happen the way life really happens. And what we're to see from this passage is that this is all from God. That's the main takeaway. This is God's doing. But it helps us understand when David becomes king why so many of his followers view his followers being Saul's followers view David's kingship as illegitimate. Uh, it helps us understand why they reject David even though David has killed Goliath, even David does a lot of good things, but their allegiance to Saul will not be transferred over to David. And in the ensuing chapters, we have all of the ingredients that are going to play out with that. So we just have to take time and work our way through this text. But I'm telling you, it's extremely fascinating if you take the time to think about all these things. What are we to understand by Saul's being refreshed by the harmful spirit? Is indeed music therapy the way to deal with spiritual problems? Is that what this passage is teaching us? No, this passage is teaching us that God is at work in really unusual ways. This panic attack was from God. And the solution that these advisors came up with, though it was a kind of a ludicrous answer to the problem, actually worked. It would, pragmatically, it worked because God wanted it to work. Because it was achieving God's purpose. Namely, that God had prepared David to be an excellent musician. And David was probably the best musician in Israel. And you say, now wait a minute. Now, now how can you say that? Because this sovereign God uses David to compose most of the book of Psalms. He's the leading musician. He's writing the music for worship. David is an incredibly gifted young man that God is using in a myriad of ways. And it, it's just so ironic to see God at work. This is also a discipline from God. This is also an opportunity for Saul to repent. Here is the long-suffering nature of our God who is going to bring situation after situation to bear. But interestingly, rather than see David as an ally and how David has been faithful to Saul all of his life, and David has been a good servant of Saul, he's going to see him as a betrayer. And his going to move from love to hatred because of his wrong perspective on the activity of all that's taking place. Well, that's the passage.
So what are we to see in this passage? Well, the main point is that God is at work in accomplishing his will to transfer the power of the kingship from Saul to David. That was God's will, and it was going to come to pass. No matter whether Saul liked it or not, whether or not Saul's army supported it or not, it didn't matter. That's what was going to happen. God is strong enough. God is big enough. God can do it. God does it. It's going to happen. This is just the initial stages. You just got to sit and watch it all play out. God is at work. Concluding applications and lessons. Well, I would start by saying we're to see the Bible as the word of God. God's declaration to us as reliable as if the heavens opened and the word of God spoke audibly. We're not engaged simply in a history lesson this morning. We have come this morning to receive instruction and direction from God for us this day in which we live and move and have to make decisions and have to act and respond. We're not just to go away and think about God and Israel and David and Saul who are long off the scene. We're to think about our lives today. I am constantly amazed at the value of expository preaching. The simple process of working your way through the Bible verse by verse and proclaiming what it says. One of the criticisms of expository preaching is that it's not relevant, that we need to look at what's happening today and start there, uh, and if you're just, you know, working your way through the scriptures, it doesn't speak to the issues of your day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this morning's message is not a topical message. It doesn't start from the events of our day and make us uh, ask, what does God say about them? I, I, I didn't sit down this week and listen to the news and then said, I wonder if there's anything in the Bible that speaks to that. I didn't start there. I started with the Bible. You know I've been working through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, for weeks. Months, actually. And this is where we are today. And I would say, by the sovereignty of God, this is where we are. I think it's relevant, don't you? Doesn't some of this stuff kind of a little familiar? Doesn't it have something to do with what's taking place today? I haven't looked for things that would support ideas. I've looked for things that the Scripture says. So rather than start with the events of today and then ask ourselves what the Bible says, we must always start with the Bible and then say, what does the Bible say? And then how does it relate to the events that we are facing? I say we must always do that because there is so much out there that is being said by so many preachers and by so many Christians that start with, a presupposition of what they want to say, and then look to the Bible to find verses that back it up. That is not the way to approach the scriptures. You start with the scriptures, and then you say, what does that say to our present day and age? Okay, This is where we are. We started with the scriptures. 
where to see that the Bible is relevant and speaks to our issues of our day. I'm both amazed and I'm humbled by God's word. I'm amazed for the Bible is so relevant, practical, and informative. I'm humbled for preaching God's word is incredible responsibility for which the Bible says that we come under greater scrutiny and judgment. The Bible says, be not many teachers for you're gonna have a more severe judgment. I tell you, I am always aware that I am gonna have to give account to God for everything I say from this pulpit. Do you realize that? That is in my mind. As I prepare, that is in my mind as I speak. I know that one day, I'm gonna stand before God and he's gonna examine every word that I have said. And will ask, is that what I said? I don't have the right to declare my ideas and thoughts. I must declare his. We are never to say more than the Bible says. And conversely, we're never to say less than what the Bible says. I'm not to add to, nor am I to take away from what the scriptures teach. What I just did was the easy part. The hard part is saying, well now, how does that apply to our day? That's what takes the discipline. That's that what needs the clarity. That, that's when you've gotta be sure that what you're saying is what the Bible says and not what you wanna say or what you've heard or whatever the case may be. That is a very stringent process. So you can't say things the Bible doesn't say and you can't jump to conclusions. For example, it would be wrong for me to say today, if President-elect uh, Biden replaces Saul, uh, replaces uh, President, thank you, I'm, my mind's going back here. President Trump as president, that means that President Biden must be more righteous than President Trump. No, you can't go there. That's not. That's not in keeping with this, that's not what it's saying. You, you can't start making those kinds of applications. You gotta be disciplined, you gotta stick to the text, you gotta be genuine, you gotta be true. But we're to see that God's word always has relevance. We do not make the Bible relevant, we reveal its relevancy. The scripture comes first, the application comes last. We're to see First and foremost, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David is our God. The God who was at work in Israel is the God who is at work today. We don't have an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. We have the same God with the same powers, with the same abilities, with a will, and who acts. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as I recognize this accountability before God, 
and know that I'm going to stand in judgment before him for everything I say, I ask myself, I'm, I'm trying to tell you the process by which I go through the preparation of a message. And the process is, what can I say with 100 degree certainty? What can I say that's irrefutable? What can I say that is absolutely clearly taught in the scripture that can't be argued? Well, actually, there are a number of things. First, we can say with absolute certainty that God establishes and removes leaders. Daniel 2.21, it is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishing kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God establishes and removes kings, period. It's true, he does. God does so in a myriad of ways. Some are quite surprising, like the king of Babylon. You know, there were so many people that could not accept in the time of Jeremiah that it was God's will that the Babylonian king would subdue Jerusalem. And Jeremiah ends up in prison as a tre- as for treason because he's telling people to submit to the Babylonian king. <laughs> They're saying, no, you've got to fight him, you've got to fight him, you've got to fight him. That's the will of God. He's a heretic, throw him in prison. God would never want that. It might surprise us sometimes what God does. The point of this passage is not exactly how God works in every situation, but the fact that God does work. And this is just illustrative of one. The second thing we can say with 100% certainty is that God has power over the hearts of rulers. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God's, the rulers of men, their hearts, their minds are in the hands of God. He has control over them. God will do his work in the lives of President-elect Biden and in President Trump. God is at work. Pray for these men. Pray for God's spirit to move. For God moves by his spirit. And their hearts and their minds are in his hands. Leaders do not always want to be removed. They don't always want to relinquish this power. This is a fact that is true historically, presently, and in the future. In the ensuing chapters, we will see all the ways that Saul acts in trying to hold on to his power and the people that solicit to help him in that struggle. It's instructive, it is informative. But that all is under the heart and will of God's oversight of their hearts and minds. Thirdly, we can say with 100% certainty that God sees what man does not see. Let me say that again. God sees what man cannot see. What comes up time and time again in 1 Samuel is the surprise at who God chooses. 
the surprise over who God places in authority. Samuel is sure it's this guy. And God says, no, 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 it's this guy. Sometimes we think, we got it down. We, we know God's will. It's so clear. And then it's not God's will. For we can't see with absolute clarity, no matter how we may pontificate and say we do, and no matter how boldly we may claim, this is God's will, do it. Well, we don't always know. We learned that God often works in a slow, painstaking process in the transmission of power from one leader to the next. We learn in the scriptures we need to be patient. In our day, that means patient in counting the ballots. That means patient in letting the president work through all the judicial things that he feels necessary to do. It means patience. It means that God often works in unusual ways that we would not anticipate. And those ways can be easily misunderstood, misconstrued, and characterized in a very ungodly way. We must refrain from doing so. Here's the biggest takeaway. We can say with 100% certainty that all Christians should be comforted this morning. Let me say that again. I can say with 100% certainty that all Christians should be comforted this morning. Why? Because God's will is going to be done. God establishes. God removes. Those Christians who fear that the election is being stolen must understand that the election can't be stolen from God. You can't thwart the will of God. It can't happen. Those who are afraid that there's not going to be a peaceful transition of power, that chaos is going to erupt and everything is just going to go berserk, there's no reason to fear. We have a sovereign God who works and controls the hearts and the minds of leaders. We can have confidence in our God. So here's the final plea. Just as there are Israelites who rejected the validity of David's kingship, there will be Christians, and there are going to be a lot of them, who deny the legitimacy of the one who is installed as president. And I don't care who it is. I don't care who it is. I don't care who ultimately on January 20th is the president of this United States. There will be Christians who will deny the legitimacy of that president. Sure, there are Christians on both sides, believe it or not. And there will be some that reject it. I say to you, Whoever is president on January 20th, that is God's will. And we should submit to that and acknowledge it as such. Be a light in this world. 
Help people to see what they are blind to without an eye of faith. And that is that God is over all that takes place. Don't merely focus upon process. Don't look at the outward circumstances. You realize how differently 1 Samuel chapter 16 would read if we didn't know that God was behind it? If you take that out of that passage, man, can you develop a conspiracy theory? Can you develop an incredible amount of stuff if you take away the fact that God is in control and over it? I say to you, if you take out of our day and age the fact that God is in control and authority, man, can you look at life in a screwed up way? And you can talk about conspiracy theories, you can talk about this, you can talk about that, you can talk about legitimacy, but if you can focus on an almighty God who is doing his will, it will preserve and keep you. If you can acknowledge that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts, and I don't stand in judgment over God, but God stands in judgment over us, then we can say, on January 20th, this is God's will, and not only that, but the scripture says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and everything give thanks. That as Christians, we can be thankful, and we can rejoice. Whoever it is, I don't care. I don't care. We can and must rejoice. My final plea is point people to Christ as the one and only solution to the needs of this world. Guard our hearts and minds so that our hope is always in Christ. Christ is our Savior. Our hope is in him, not in the one who will ultimately be president. The security, the outcome, the blessing of this nation is not who our president is, it is who our God is. Always keep in mind that we're to be subservient to the word of God. May our thoughts be truly governed by the word and not by the voices that surround us. And lastly, may our allegiance to our brothers and sisters in Christ always be greater than our allegiance to any political party. The unity we are to have as the people of God out of faith and trust in Almighty God who is at work and can accomplish his purpose and his will. We see it in 1 Samuel 16. We're to learn it for this day in which we live. Let's pray. Almighty God, comfort us from your word. Help us to see that you are the Almighty One. Help us to see that your will is accomplished. You indeed are sovereign. Help us not to focus upon circumstances, but focus upon you. Oh Lord, there is so much of what your word says that is so applicable to our lives. For your word is living, powerful, sharper than two-edged sword. We don't just read a book of history. 
We read a book of instruction, of comfort, of help, of hope in the day in which we live. Thank you, O God, for being our God. Thank you. We pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We trust that you can bring that to pass. For you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.